Hi, I'm Brandon. And I'm Megan. For years, we were stuck in a rut, always complaining that nothing ever changed for us. And then we realized, if we wanted to improve our lives, we had to put in the work. Each week on this podcast, we'll get into an aspect of personal growth, relationships, or just life. Through our own experiences and guest interviews, we hope to inspire you to make your own positive changes. Welcome Welcome to to the the Fools in Love Podcast. Podcast. Hi guys, today we want to welcome Becky Curran Kakula to the Fools in Love podcast. Becky is a motivational speaker and advocate for inclusion everywhere. Becky strives to teach acceptance while educating and motivating all people to establish goals and work hard to accomplish them. Becky, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So glad you're here, Becky. And we always like to start off with you just telling your story and sharing it with our audience, just giving them some background kind of where you're coming from. And I think that just allows us to just connect with you more and our audience to connect with kind of who you are. Definitely. Something that's been coming up a lot more recently is just self-identification, especially uh, working and trying to navigate this global pandemic. And I am proud to identify as a person with dwarfism and also someone who's proud to be part of the disability community. I really believe in trying to strengthen the word disability so people don't just act fearful of it. So going back 36 years to when I was born, most people with dwarfism are born to average height parents. So my father's 6'4". A lot of times when we're in public, people are confused as to how we could be related. But we are related. We do have a few similar facial features, so it gives it away sometimes. But having average height parents who've never really seen a little person, at least a positive portrayal of a little person in the media, at least up until that point in 1984, they were extremely fearful when they found out that their daughter had dwarfism. And the only way they were able to find out was because when they were in the delivery room, when I was born through a C-section, they had a doctor in the delivery room who had seen a little person be born there before. And this is probably just two little people in that hospital in the entire span of that person's career. So all the answers were definitely not there when I was first leaving the hospital with my parents, but it was recommended for them to go to see a geneticist. And I tell this story often because it shows the example of how my parents have fought hard to be an advocate and I, in return, advocate for those people who come after me. So we got to the hospital where we were going to meet with the geneticist and my parents were really relieved because they thought they were gonna find all the answers and find out that I was gonna be okay. But right when they got to the hospital to go meet with the geneticist, they checked in with the receptionist and she told them that they needed to follow the sign down the hallway that says birth defects. And then they need to go in the elevator and hit the button for the the floor that says birth defect floor. And then there was going to be another sign that says birth defects down the hallway on the floor they got to and their genetic counselor would be waiting for them right after that. And that... (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's just, and I'm sure you guys as parents, like hearing that any type of difference that your child may have, nobody wants to be told that their child has birth defects. So my parents had the appointment, but they were still very anxious and all of the, their answers were not, 
there and they continued to have to do research on their own. But in the meantime, they also wrote a letter to the hospital to say, please change, change that sign. We don't want any parent to have to go and see that sign when they're just trying to get answers and trying to find trust in a genetic counselor to help them navigate this new scenario that they weren't expecting. So they wrote that letter, continued to advocate. They got very involved in our local community where if there were children with dwarfism born at the local hospital, my parents would be there as a resource. There was one family who called my parents and said, we don't want to bring it home. And they had to convince that family that their child who was two years younger than me had the potential to lead an independent, fulfilling life. And that mentality should not exist. But you can only do so much and it's really up to the families to figure out if they want to try to find the answers. It was in six months into my life that we went down to Baltimore, Maryland, where we were able to find a specialist. So I was born in Boston. We drove eight hours to Baltimore, Maryland. The only way we were able to see that dwarfism specialist was if I went through a sleep study. So they were doing a research project, bringing together a lot of different people with dwarfism and they wanted me to come and then I would be able to get an appointment with that doctor. And my parents went into the waiting room of the doctor. Waiting room was full. People with dwarfism from all over the world would come to see this doctor. And he saw that their faces were white. Like they were so anxious and nervous because they still didn't have the answers. And they had just driven eight hours hoping this would be the end to, uh, to the new beginning. And the doctor came out of his office after an appointment and said, you two come here they and me they they went into the doctor's office he said ask me any question you have and it was something about that appointment where they were able to gain new hope that i was going to be okay and it was going to be a long journey but we were going to have support from that doctor even if he was eight hours away and we had to drive it just all in one day or take a train whatever was affordable to do each time that was the right thing having that doctor to guide us and navigate this dwarfism comes with having medical complications it's just kind of a part of what comes with having a condition there are over 400 types so me growing up i had eight surgeries but there are many people who've had over 20. wow uh, so after we had that doctor's appointment we also had a general pediatrician in Massachusetts that we could go to more regularly. And I grew up with my average height peers. I really didn't see any other little people unless we were at that doctor's appointment once a year, sometimes twice a year. And then I had friends all average height, but I just kind of fit in within the community, especially up to kindergarten where I was still around the same height as everyone. And then people started growing taller after that. I had one friend who was in my class from preschool to seventh grade, and I think my parents strategically planned it where they wanted to make sure that I had an ally. And I think that prevented a lot of potential bullying. People often ask me, do you experience bullying? And I think I've experienced it more in adult life than when I was younger. And I, my mother was a special education teacher in the middle school. And I think because a lot of people respected her well, they knew that once I got to middle school, they needed to be respectful to me. And I was thankful to have her pave the way. And then once we got to seventh grade, the friend who was in my class up until then 
her last name was Walsh and mine was Curran. So we got separated because homerooms were alphabetical order. Mm -hmm. But I felt I was ready to advocate on behalf of myself uh, at that point. I did have leg surgery when I was three and when I was in seventh grade. And then in 10th grade, I lost my ability to walk and had to have seven pieces of my lower vertebrae removed. And that was the hardest thing for me because I had to miss 29 days of school. I know I should have been nervous about this surgery, and it, there could have been a lot of things that went wrong. And there were some people who heard that I could die from this surgery, but it, it made more sense to go through with it because I also had the potential to be able to walk again. And when people started talking to me, like not knowing if they'd ever see me again, it felt really isol isolating. And I think that probably is something that can be similar to the experience of people who have life-threatening illnesses. And I fortunately made it through. One of the things that the doctor who we went to at six months and beyond recommended for my parents is to keep me in the same school system. So I would be with the same group of classes growing up and there would be less likely for me to experience bull bullying. So one of the things that I learned even in 10th grade when I missed those 29 days of school was that I needed to stay with my class. Like even they said you could take the year off and then graduate with the class behind you. But I had grown up with these people in my class, direct class. So it was important for me to stay committed. There were some tutors that didn't end up showing up to our house. So I did fall behind in a few classes, but I was still able to get back to school after 29 days. And this was in the fall. So by the spring I was caught up. And then uh, 11th grade was, <laughs> A lot of people hear me talk about this as well, but it was a time where a lot of my girlfriends started dating guys and they would leave me behind a bit because they didn't really think that since there weren't other little people in our school, was there really an opportunity for me to date? And I will say that not all little people just date other little people, but that was kind of the mindset. And I was left out of some social circles during 11th grade. And that was probably the hardest time of experiencing emotional bullying, like being left out. And then I just thought about when I look back, I could have done some really cool things with my parents, but no one at that age wants to be seen in public <laughs> with their parents at night at the movies or whatever. So there were a lot of hard days where I was really upset that I wasn't getting invited places. And then we get to 12th grade and I tried my best not to hold grudges, but everyone was starting to get ready for college. So we all started getting along a little bit more and people were welcoming me into the circles again. And I, I took it for what it was and was appreciated to be part of the community. I also from eight to 18 got really active in sailing during the summers. So I did have a support group of friends who I grew up sailing with, but they were really summer friends and their parents had the pressure on them, like stay in touch with your school friends during the school year. So I did have those friends to count on, but it was still a feeling of isolation. And then I got to college. I decided to go to Providence College in Rhode Island because there was a little person in the cafeteria when I first got there and I thought, wait a minute, like if there's at least one other little person in this environment, at least people can be respectful because they know about her. So this was while I was on the tour before deciding where to go. Ended up going to Providence. I was 
getting ready to move into school, I participated in this program called Urban Action, where it's like Habitat for Humanity. You go in, you clean up a farm with about 150 other people who are going to be incoming freshmen. And I was like, great, this is a great way to get to know people. I'm off to a great start. And then I moved into my dorm. I had moved in early, a few days early, before the other two roommates arrived. One roommate I had met through during the summer and the other roommate I got along well with on the phone, but we hadn't met yet. So we get into school and she reacts negatively to the fact that I was a little person. She just didn't know. She didn't know what that meant. She maybe thought that she was gonna have to help me and I was gonna rely on her a lot. And it really affected the tone that we had on the phone to the tone we were able to have living as roommates. And it was a tough six months of trying to prove that, don't worry, I'm independent. I'm not gonna rely on you, it's gonna be okay. And to this day, we look back at it and talk about it. And she says how she just didn't know any better and I'm very willing to help people learn. But it took till the end of that school year to become really close with someone who to this day is my best friend. She was on the swim team. She was someone I met through that urban action program. And we were roommates through the rest of school. She is the best person for me to be close friends with because she gives me constructive feedback. I think a lot of people assume with people with disabilities like, oh, I'm just going to let them fly by. Fly, fly by, we're not gonna pay attention, they're just gonna be over there. But we wanna be so much integrated into society and a part of everyday life. And the only way we can learn is if people tell us how we can get better. So there are many times where of course we had some tiffs and disagreements, but it was her helping me improve. And then uh, after college, so I was a marketing major in college and had multiple jobs experiences through internship opportunities and during college was also a time when I got involved with Little People of America the organization that supports people with dwarfism was not involved growing up my parents had some resources through the organization but as an adult I was like this is the time I want to start getting involved seeing more people like me and also experiencing like dating and other people like me, appreciating me for who I am, regardless of my short stature. So I got involved there and then I ended up just becoming friends with a lot of people who were living in California. And I started leaning towards a career working behind the scenes in the entertainment industry because I really wanted to change how people like us are perceived in the media because it affects how people are treated in society. It affects parents deciding whether or not to take their child home from the hospital. And I really wanted to make sure there were more positive portrayals. But I did know that I needed to get my foot in the door first before being able to let that passion come out loud and clear. So I had entertainment related internship experiences. I then moved out to Los Angeles. I was supposed to work for a talent manager who also happens to be a little person. But the day I got out to Los Angeles, that job fell through. And my parents had told me, you can't move out to California unless you have a job and a place to live. I got the place to live. I was going to stay with friends for a while and I've got the job. We got out there. The job fell through, but since I still had a place to live and some money saved up from graduation, I was able to figure out how to make it out, make it work for a few months, but there was not gonna be a day where I wasn't working to try to find work. 
And my dad actually gave me a note that he left after they dropped me off because they flew out to California, helped me get settled for a week and then moved back to Boston. So as hard as it was for me to move across the country, they've always been very supportive of my goals and dreams. And I found the letter a few days after they left and he said, I always wanted you to be independent, but I never thought you'd be this independent. <laughs> <laughs> and there was only one time in my life growing up that they remember when I said, I don't want to be a little person anymore. And it was when I was in, at soccer practice with my friends early elementary school. And I was just sad that I couldn't run as fast as them. And my dad said to me, you were given difference on a platter. Like you were born this way for a reason and you should remember that. And I never said anything else after that day. So I moved. So once I started the job search, I sent out a thousand resumes and I went on a hundred interviews. It was clear that I was qualified to do those hundred jobs, very entry level. I wasn't applying for CEO positions, but every time I'd walk into the interview, I was judged based on my appearance because I didn't put on my resume that I was a little person because I didn't think it affected how I'd be able to do the job. And this was before LinkedIn and Facebook and other things that could show that I'm a little person. And I just kept doing four interviews a day, never got the constructive feedback that I love and crave. So I never knew if I was just a terrible interviewer or they really didn't have a place for me. But there were also times where if they were going to be, even with body language, rejecting me, I didn't want to put myself in those types of environments. One time I went to a recruiting agency and the recruiter immediately looked at me and said, you're so cute. How did you get here? I said, <laughs> I, I drove. <laughs> and then like thinking about that for her to be the person who's pitching me for jobs was not flying well with me. And I ended up going through a few temporary placement agencies after the four months of interviewing because I knew that if I went and met with these people, they could then advocate on my behalf and just send me to go work somewhere. And then I could prove how capable I was. I did a month working at the Hallmark Channel and then it was, it was getting to be the holiday season. So I did an internship related to just helping with gifting for this place called Trailer Park where they make trailers for movies. And then I had to decide whether or not I was gonna go back home to Boston for the holidays. And I was dealing with this feeling of, wait, I don't have a job yet. And they're asking me from home if I'm ready to come home yet, do I really wanna go home for Christmas or do I wanna keep trying? And my family promised me, we'll let you go back out there. You still have a place to live just come home for the holidays. And then it was a little bit after the holidays. This was in January of 2007. I got a call from Creative Artists Agency, which is one of the largest talent and sports agencies in LA. And they had an opening in the Hispanic marketing department. I went and started there. I was fortunate to work for someone who had an experience in diversity as a whole. Unfortunately, I took French in high school, so I had no experience in <laughs> Spanish. And then I was also learning just how to be an assistant at a fast-paced talent agency. But I was able to get her support. She brought on another assistant who could then train me to do kind of the admin type work. 
And after about a month, the HR department called and said, your term's up. But I was able to have this person who I was working for advocate on my behalf to let me stay a little longer after she heard how long it took me and how hard it was to get to where I was. And then there was an opportunity that became available in the entertainment marketing department a few months later. And that allowed me to feel a little bit more comfortable because it was more corporate branding, marketing, the experience that I had. And it ended up being a total of seven months between Hispanic marketing and entertainment marketing where I went from a temporary employee to permanent. I had to say, if you don't make me a permanent employee, I'm gonna have to leave, even though it was really hard to get here. Fast forward about two and a half years, uh, there was some movement going on in the marketing department where they were starting to let people go. One of my bosses ended up bringing me to the music sponsorship department and he decided that I needed to figure out where I want to go next, but I was safe, I still had a job. There was an opening in the comedy touring department. I ended up going out to comedy clubs up to four times a night, sharing feedback on what I thought about different comedians. I did that for two years. Then I really decided that I did not want to be a talent agent and that was not the environment that I wanted to stay in. So I did get questions asked of me while I was at the agency at that point where I could start vocalizing what I was passionate about and why I was there in the first place. And one of the partners of the agency actually told me a story about his relationship to disability. His father, before he passed away, lived with this partner and he had no legs. I think it was from an illness. He had to have his legs amputated. And I asked him, so you've had this experience with your father. Does anyone here know that? And people feel, which something I feel very blessed about is because I can't hide my difference, people are more willing to open up to me about their difference, especially if it's invisible. But I want more of those stories told. <laughs> I want more CEOs to talk about their relationships to disabilities, partner of agencies, because these they're storytellers. And these stories could get out there into the world and then more people could see people like them portrayed. So it was a little frustrating, but then I was able to use the agency, the theater, to put together a panel discussion where we brought in 160 people from behind the scenes and in front of the scenes in the entertainment industry who happen to have disabilities. So it was a whole conversation about disability and media. And from that, I started a Facebook and Twitter called Disability and Media, where I just constantly share stories about people with disabilities doing things that people wouldn't think was possible. A lot of it falls into the sports world because people in sports, uh, most times if someone acquires a disability later in life, they don't think they can pr participate in their favorite activities, but you can in just different ways. And we've just been, con I've continued to try to support and push great stories out there because I've been able to grow up in an environment where my family pushes me to accomplish whatever it is I may want to accomplish, but it takes a lot of people to see something before they decide to go after it. And so after the agency, I went to work in the television casting department at CBS Television Studios, helped try to influence casting, what people see on scripted television. I did that for about a year and I still kept feeling there was this theme that the entertainment industry is very focused on box office numbers and we need to figure out how to make change somewhere else because I was getting antsy. 
I had a friend who was my roommate at the time when I decided to leave CBS and he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And he was one of the people I tried to advocate on behalf of because he was an actor with dwarfism and he was misled sometimes. He would show up at an audition and it would be for something that totally wasn't described. It would be something degrading. And he needed to move back to Georgia where he was from. I decided to move back to Boston. It was a very hard decision because it took me a long time to get my foot in the door in Los Angeles. But I moved home. My sister told me that she wanted me to come to her class because she's a creative writing teacher in middle school. She said, come share your story. And I decided to go share my story to her class and then started reaching out to Rotary Clubs and all these different places. Got involved with the Little People organization locally. They have different chapters locally in different parts of the country. And I went to a parents meeting and a lot of parents were saying, we have children that are struggling to fit in, especially if we have to move because of a job to a new town. They're struggling to go from elementary to middle school or middle school to high school because they're getting to know all these people that they've never met before. And some may be kind and some may not be. So they invited me to come to the schools. I do a two-pronged approach where I talk to the administrators, talk to them about the accommodations I had growing up, and then talk to the whole student body and let them know that it's okay to ask questions. And I think that's the biggest thing, just making it free. Even though a lot of teachers cringe, they're like, you're, you're saying that no question's offensive? Like, we don't know what they're going to say. <laughs> but I continue to do that. And then after about a year and a half, I actually went to Kenya and helped start a little people organization there. And when I came back from Kenya, I moved to New York City to work at the Actors Union in the Diversity Department. And I wanted to advocate on behalf of actors still, but it was a little bit more low key than the intense environment I was in in Los Angeles. And I delivered a TEDx talk about disability portrayals in media in 2014. And I did the union for about three and a half years and then found out about the organization I now work for now, which is Corporate America, adding disability inclusion to their agenda. And I learned there's a big difference between the entertainment industry and corporate America. Corporate America is making it known that they want to get better in this space. And the industry is slowly catching on and some of it overlaps. But these are companies, direct corporations working together to share best practices to reduce the unemployment rate because it continues to be double that of those without disabilities. <sighs> yeah, that's incredible. I mean, obviously we appreciate you sharing your story. It's kind of amazing as you were talking because you're interweaving your parents in it and you can kind of see where you get that advo advocacy from. Like clearly they've instilled like those values in you, which is, which is amazing. And I love that you like go in because I've seen like some of your work going in and like talking to classes, talking to students. Do you find it's easier for you to communicate to students or kids or than it is to like talking to adults, other adults? Because at least kids curiosity, like they'll actually ask questions. Whereas adults, like you said, they kind of place you over here and say, well, we're just not even going to touch that. Do you find it easier to communicate with kids in that way? Great question. Absolutely. My family and I were out one time and it was a holiday like Mother's Day or Father's Day. And we saw this parent point to their child and say, look over there. And the child was like, hey, wait a minute, you're being a little crazy. <laughs> so 
a lot of times, even though people assume younger isn't always smarter or wiser, they can go home and educate their parents. I think the most powerful thing that happens when I go and speak at schools is there are some kids that may see me and start laughing and pointing and staring, but then they're silent after I speak or they find things to relate to. I think when I start telling stories about participating in sports, traveling, photography, those simple hobbies that anyone can have a passion for, people start learning things we have in common. There are some really young kids that ask, like, how do you hug your mom? And they don't realize they're currently my height. <laughs> so it's <Right. laughs> the way they hug their mom. But I appreciate their curiosity where I think parents, and you even notice it within the schools, like kindergarten, early elementary school, and nothing's off limits. But once you get to the high school, when it comes to question and answer session, it takes a few brave souls to ask the first few questions before they all start diving in. And when then I think the sorry. teachers too are like, you're really gonna, and then they'll wanna ask me questions off to the side, not in front of everyone. Yeah, when do you think, like you, know, you mentioned that kindergarten and first grade is kind of like, they'll go all in. When do you think we start to learn like, oh, don't ask this and do ask this and keep quiet. Like, when does that happen and how do we, shift the tone of the conversation so that we never go to a place where we're learning to shut our mouths and instead always keeping that broader base of like being able to ask and learn for the entirety of our lives. I think it's that mentality of the teacher, the parent at home who says you shouldn't ask that, like let's not offend that person without knowing that that person rather be asked the questions than it's still obvious when someone's pulling their child and then like you hear a screaming child because they're in pain from being pulled away when they could have just come up and asked me a question and I'd be okay with it. Uh, there was a family one time, this lady, I spoke at a networking event. She said how she was about to marry into a family where she'd have three more sons and she was worried that she'd be out in public with them and there wouldn't be someone as approachable as me. So I think it's these made up thoughts and there could be someone not as approachable as me. I, I, I don't know who they're gonna run into, but you don't know until you go up and just say hello and then take it from there. If it starts to feel awkward, you may say, have a nice day and move on, but you don't know until you try. And I think it's trying to encourage people to offer to go help someone, but don't try to step on their toes and try to do things for them. Cause I think that frustrates people too. If someone just tries to hover over them or uh, pat you on the head or whatever it may be to try to make themselves feel less awkward. I think it's really just making sure that the minds stay open there was one school, it was a high school that I was going to speak at. There was a little person transitioning into that high school. And there was a letter that was sent home from the high school to the parents saying that I was coming. Probably just to, maybe there were some points that they wanted the parents to make to prepare the children. But while we got to the, when we got to the school before I was about to go present, there was someone in the auditorium telling his friend, the only reason we're having this presentation is because a midget's coming to our school next year. Mm -hmm. And I thought, all right, where did things get lost in translation? It was either the letter that was sent to home and the parents translated it wrong, or what did this letter say? 
<laughs> there was something wrong in the piece of communication. And I think that's what causes kids to be skeptical. Yeah. And I think it's, it's amazing in the time that we currently live in. I just like, I know whether it's disability, whether it's, you know, race, whether it's sexuality, it just seems like we're divided now more than we ever have been. And I think that education piece for me is how you get to a, a greater place of unity. But I would love to ask you that, like, how would you feel like we get to a greater place of unity just as a human race where we're not like so exclusive, where we're trying to be more inclusive and include everyone and just treat everyone the same. So July 26 will be the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was a huge movement for the disability community to protect the community, especially when it comes to workplace accommodations and protections. And I think historically, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we may talk about ethnicity, gender, LGBT community, but disability always falls off. And it's the one category that anyone could be a part of. And that's why I take a lot of pride in trying to strengthen the word because it doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. It's a different perspective that you can bring to life. I talk about when I'm traveling, there are a lot of different challenges that take place. If I'm not in my own room with the step stool set up in certain places, I may get to a hotel and I choose to have a standard hotel room versus an ADA accessible hotel room because wheelchairs may come up higher than the standard sink in a standard room. So I get to a hotel, I ask for a step stool. Most times they don't have it. So I have to figure out how to get in the bed, how to <laughs> land on my feet the next day, and then how to reach the sink in the bathroom, how to shower, reaching the knobs, just all these different things that happen that we don't necessarily talk about. We just want to get to wherever we need to be on time for whatever meeting we're going to. And I think it's important for people to know that the disability community comes with problem solving skills. And it's not something that people should be fearful of. And I find that people who do end up acquiring a disability later in life are more accepting of their own challenges if they've immersed themselves in the community. And I think there's just a lot of fear and stigma around making the community a part of the whole diversity conversation. And there's a lot of crossover. Like there was a little person who was a year after me in college who happened to be black and she fit in really well because my college was predominantly Irish Catholic white people and I'm trying to fit into this larger population and she had another community to be a part of. So sometimes intersectionality can be an advantage to people when it comes to advancement and inclusion and advocating for our rights going forward. I think we just have to learn how to be kinder and give people a chance without assuming that they can't do things based on their appearance, regardless of any demographic background. Yeah, I, I really love that. I love what you're saying. And I love when you're saying that, you know, give us a chance because, hey, we can do it. And actually, we probably can do it better than you can because we've had to think it through, whereas you guys just go and like do your thing. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, for us, like you said, we don't have to think about getting out of bed. And, and that for you is a very real thing. And I love that, like, you're bringing that to our attention. And hopefully our listeners can feel that that challenge for you and realize that, you know, like not everybody wakes up the same way we do. And there's just all different walks of life and all different experiences. So I love that. How, if we don't have 
somebody in our lives to ask? If there's no one around to ask, how do we go about educating ourselves that goes beyond like finding somebody in the store that we can approach? Like, you know, if we got to see you in real life and we got to come up to you and ask all the questions, if there's not somebody around, what's the best way to go about educating ourselves? What resources do you point people to and how do you, how do you share that with them? Great question. So I serve on the National Center for Disability Journalism at Arizona State University's board. And they came up with this fantastic style guide, which is meant to be for journalists, but it can help people in everyday life on the terminology, like why certain communities prefer different terms or prefer you to not use certain terms. So I can definitely make sure that that can be available. And I think it's in a few different languages. And also I would just say, don't get so caught up on the terminology and just no matter who the person is that you see, even if it's, you never know, even when you're in the grocery store, if there's someone who may have an invisible disability, even though you can't see it. So 75% of disabilities are invisible. So you could be around someone without realizing it because I think there are a lot of people who may not necessarily identify unless they think it's physical or they don't want to identify because they see how people with physical disabilities are treated in society. So I would just say, the best approach is just to treat everyone similarly. There was a time where someone once told me about how she moved here from another country. She and her cousin were trying to fit in in a new school district. And as she was starting to tell me the story, she said to me, I had this challenge happen to me, but it wasn't as bad as what's happened to you. And I got so frustrated because I don't like when people say that because I really think a challenge is a challenge. I don't want people to feel bad for me. I just want them to give me a chance. And we all experience challenge in different ways. And as we've learned that with these skills, problem solving that have come with adapting to everyday life as a person with a disability, there are some skills that may help us deal with challenges a little better. So that makes our challenge even less challenging than maybe someone else. Yeah, and it's like, it's disheartening to me because I, I've heard you talk about how with your disability, just because you're smaller, people like treat you like a child. Like they treat you like mm -hmm. you can't comprehend these adult things because you're short. It's like, it's, it, and to me, that's like, it's like, how do we, how do we break that, that stigma? Because it's like, clearly, even, even for people, like, obviously you, you are shorter stature. So like you said, it's obvious that you can see it, but like, for example, I've never shared this on this program, but like my uncle had down syndrome. So like, it was very clear that, that he had that, but I remember as a kid getting those looks you know, like being out in my family was completely comfortable. I mean, I, I had no problem with it. I had no problem sharing it, but you start to kind of develop it over time when you see other people interacting with people with disabilities. And I just, for the, I know we've talked about it a little bit here, but for the life of me, I don't know how to like break other people. I, I have no stigma. At least I try not to because I grew up with that experience. But if you didn't, then it becomes more and more challenging. And, and again, I just don't know how to break the cycle. And, and I know we try to do it like with our kids, for example, we have two younger kids. We try to bring them up to treat everyone the same, but even society over time is going to mold them in a way that we, we can instill, but it, it sometimes can break that. So I don't know how to do that. Did you guys mention, are you currently in Dallas? 
We're in uh, Raleigh, Raleigh-Durham. You are, okay. There, so there are some programs around the country for kids, and it's great for having some of the parents who are advocates who have, there are different curriculums, like physical disabilities, hearing disabilities, cognitive disabilities, um, in the different grades, so they can start getting immersed into all the different types of disabilities. And then usually there's a speaker that happens in middle school. So there are a lot of programs all around the country but I would say keep sharing that story because it's really important because it really affects how you are as a person, like a more compassion and understanding. Like my aunts who I'm very close with are my dad's sisters. So they're both over six feet tall and they've been in scenarios where they want to go up to a little people family, a family of little people and it feels awkward because how do they prove that they have a niece who's looking for <laughs> understanding? So it's like, there are so many different scenarios. And then I will say, even on the advocating on behalf of all disabilities can sometimes be challenging because of the very fact that people look at me, see my size, think that I can't keep up a certain level of conversation. In some communities, you may have to handle communication a little differently and there have been moments where I've kind of been in the middle of the two and it's hard because you want to be able to help everyone and advocate for everyone but there are different experiences we all have and that translates to how we can communicate. There was this great book that I heard about recently where it's a children's book and it's for people who are about to find out that their child has Down syndrome, in the hospitals, the medical professionals often say, I'm sorry, like, go off and figure it out. But this book says congratulations, and it's letters from people with Down syndrome saying, congratulations, this is all that I've been able to accomplish. And then even just think about the amount of people they influence who can then go lead better trying to understand lives. And I think the biggest piece is just making it known that you're trying to understand and do your best. And also making it known that you may screw up once in a while and that's okay too, because we're all human. I think it's as you put it out there that you're willing to learn, willing to make change. You just want to do it in the right way. The community will be more forgiving of those types of people rather than those people who tend to ignore us because they don't even want to stumble over words or terminology. Yeah, that's, I, gosh, I love this interview. This is so, <laughs> so cool. Thank you so much. What have we not covered that like you feel like you just need to share? What have we not asked you? I would just say that we often celebrate especially more recently, there have been a lot of innovations, especially in corporate America, the inclusive hiring programs among all parts of disability. But there isn't as much conversation around retention and advancement, and that comes with this constructive feedback piece. Nobody has the potential to move up if they're not giving, given the correct feedback. So it's important to help guide people, mentor people. Everyone deserves to have a mentor, whether or not you identify as having a disability or not. And it's important to continue to help people get better and support them on their journey. There was a school I was speaking at once. I, I didn't know of anyone with uh, at least a physical disability, but a young girl said to me that she wanted to be a teacher, but her dad told her that there wasn't gonna be an opportunity to be a teacher, even though she was in sixth grade. And I thought, why is someone 
why is your parent tell, giving you limiting beliefs already? And that's what I try to do as well. Even though people look at me and see that I have dwarfism and know that I'm an advocate for the community, they don't see that I also try to just teach people to stop getting in their own way. And even if people tell you you can't do something, still try to go after it. Uh, so I want people to know that we're all rooting for each other and we're here to support each other. And I'm willing to teach people if they want to learn. And it's okay if you made mistakes. Don't worry about mistakes you made in the past. Let's learn and grow together. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. So Becky, if people want to find you, if they want to reach out and maybe connect with you, what's, where can they find you? How's the easiest place for them to get in touch? So my website is beckymotivates.com. It was very handy that I, I didn't stick to my former last name since I'm recently married, uh, but the brand is just Becky Motivate. So it's my website and then Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, LinkedIn. You can find me through that brand. And then YouTube has a lot of my recent videos, even recent webinars I've done in this COVID world. <laughs> Very cool. Well, we want to just personally thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. And hopefully our audience has got a lot of education out of it. And hopefully it kind of moves our world forward to look at everyone as a human being and not as their individual traits. So Thank and you so that much. friend just moved to Raleigh. So oh, very cool. Up. All right. Well, if you're in Raleigh, you better reach out to us then. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much for coming on. Take care. Hey, B, what did you think of that episode? I think it was pretty dang good. Well, what should someone do if they enjoyed these last 30 minutes? They should probably head over and leave us a review so we can reach more people. They definitely should. Guys, if you like the Fools in Love podcast, please go follow us over on Instagram at Fools in Love Podcast. We'd love to connect with you and learn more about what you'd like to hear.